Please open in your copy of the scriptures to 2 Timothy. Earlier we read from 1 Timothy. Open, please, to 2 Timothy. That's right after 1 Timothy. As you're looking for that book in your New Testament, let me just comment on how it is a pleasure for me to be able to open the scriptures to you week after week. I don't take it for granted. I appreciate your attention. I appreciate your confidence as well as we look through the Word of God. Uh, My hope is to stay true to the text. Keep my finger in the text. It's hard to go wrong when you keep your finger in the text. Simply explain what is there and why it's there. And this morning we're going to take a look at what Paul wrote to this young pastor named Timothy. Timothy was a pastor in a fledgling church in the city of Ephesus. That's modern-day Turkey. And Paul, the apostle, uh, treated Timothy like a son. And here he's giving instruction to Timothy. Now, you'll find it interesting that this, this is Paul's last letter. This is the last writing of the apostle Paul before he is martyred. At this point, he is incarcerated. He's uh, approaching the day of his death. And he knows it. If you read on in chapter 4, he speaks about how his days are short and soon he knows They're going to execute him. And they're going to execute him not because he was a malicious criminal, but because he was a proclaimer of the gospel of Christ in an era and in a place where it was not acceptable. They made all kinds of accusations against him, and eventually one stuck. And now he is incarcerated. And these are his thoughts. Now, if I was sitting, getting ready to die in a prison unjustly, I wonder if these would be my thoughts, if I would be so concerned for the church of Christ. I'd like to think I would be. Obviously, Paul was. Of all the things to talk about, this is what he writes. His last thoughts, his last words, his last letter. And he writes in chapter 2, at the very end of chapter 2, verses 24, 25, and 26. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 26, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so here in what is called a pastoral epistle, the Apostle Paul is writing to a pastor about being a pastor. He gives to us, to Timothy in particular, but to all pastors, particular instructions of how and what he ought to be. But please, don't be mistaken. As I said earlier, I want to repeat it again. Don't be mistaken that because Paul is writing to this pastor, he's only telling pastors to be this. This is not just for pastors. This is for anybody who claims to be under the authority of Christ. Anybody who claims Christ is Lord and Savior. Anybody who says, oh yes, I belong to Jesus. Paul refers to you as the Lord's servant, the Lord's servant. Anybody who says, I'm being transformed and sanctified by the Spirit of God, 
This is for you. Here's a difference, though. The pastor has to have attained these qualities, these virtues, in order to be a pastor. Whereas the average Christian should be pursuing these virtues, looking to attain them. And Lord willing, you will soon. Some of you have. And so Paul refers to this young pastor as the Lord's servant. Now, it's an interesting note there, an interesting word, the Lord's servant, literally in the original language, which was Greek, ancient Greek, not the today's Greek, similar, but not the same. The word actually reads there, bondservant, the Lord's bondservant. What's the difference? Well, a servant was a slave. A slave is there unwillingly, maybe because he was captured in war, maybe because he was in debt. Slavery in those days was quite different than what we know slavery to be. And, and, and so the, the slave is there, but not necessarily by choice. This is what I have to do until my debt is paid off. This is what I have to do until I find a way to escape back to my homeland from where I was taken during war. But that's not what Paul is referring to. He's referring to a bond slave, a bond servant. And a bond servant was one who said, you know what? I've earned my freedom. I could get up tomorrow morning and walk away and never step into this place again. But that would be a little foolish because I have it pretty good here. I have a great master. He cares for me. He cares for my family. He puts a roof over my head. I have plenty of clothes. I have plenty of food. I have work. I kind of like it here. What am I going to do once I leave here? I don't know. Maybe he'll let me stay. So a bondservant was one who actually stayed under the authority of his master willingly. He wanted to stay there because it was a good place to stay. I will place myself under your authority because you're a good master. It's very similar to what we do every day when we go to work. We say, I'll place myself for the next 8, 10, 12 hours today under your authority because you treat me well. In fact, you even put money in my bank account. Here the bondservant is saying, can I stay? I will stay if you'll let me stay because you're a good, good master. And, and of course, the shrewd master would say, I'll keep you. I have all these years. Why not now? And to prove that you were a bondservant, to mark you as a bondservant, what the master would do is, is take a nail and drive it through your earlobe. You would pierce your ear, and you would wear an earring. And when people would see you in public, they would say, oh, you're a slave. Oh, you're a bond slave. You're willingly a slave. And so that would say a lot about you. You're there because you want to be. Nobody's forcing you. But it also says a lot about your master. Your master must be so good, but so good, that you're willing to stay there. You place yourself under his authority because he's a good man. He's a good man. And that's who Paul writes to. He refers to Timothy, to us, as a bondservant. People who have willingly placed ourselves under the authority of Christ. He's the master, our master. And whereas my ear is not pierced, my heart is. 
And when people see me, they should be able to say, oh, look, he willingly has placed himself under the authority of his master, Jesus Christ. You can't see my heart, but you can see my life. We can see each other's lives, and our lives should say, I belong to the great master, the wonderful master, Christ alone. And so Paul says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Now, notice here that there are a few characteristics of what a servant of God should look like. Last week, we looked at three other characteristics. Should I ask you what they were? Three C's, remember? I'll let you think about it. It's online if you want to go back and check. Well, today we also have uh, uh, three, three, other, uh, three letters, and, and, and some do involve a C, uh, but the first one does not. How can we serve God properly? How can we serve God better? Well, take a look there at verse 24. Here's the first one. If you want to be a good servant of Christ, it begins with this virtue. Be kind. It sounds like a very nice church word, doesn't it? Oh, of course, be kind. You learned that in kindergarten. Right? In fact, many of the things we learned in kindergarten come straight out of the scriptures. Be kind. But, but let's not trivialize it. This is, this is not just a tutoring for five-year-olds. No, this is speaking to us. And the older we get, the harder it is to be kind in many cases. The more we are inundated with, with, with experiences and with people, often it becomes harder and harder to be kind. Well, here we see that we are to be kind. In fact, Paul first states it in a negative. He says, do not be quarrelsome. There's no sense of quarreling that is kind. You cannot kind you cannot quarrel kindly. <laughs> it's combative. Quarreling means you're at odds with somebody. Quarreling means, look, I want to win, you need to lose. That can't be kind. A friend of mine likes to use the word pugilistic. He uses it quite often. A pugilist is a boxer. That's a nice name for saying I'm a boxer. Larry Holmes, a pugilist. Muhammad Ali, well, what's your occupation? I sting like a bee. I'm a pugilist. <laughs> well, a pugilistic person is somebody who likes to fight. Somebody who likes to quarrel. 1 Timothy 3.3 says, The pastor is not to be pugnacious. He's not to be quarrelsome. He should not be battling. But listen, it's not just the pastor. That's you too. He says, you should not be quarrelsome. And then he puts it in the positive. He says, but rather he is to be kind to everyone. The opposite of quarreling is kindness to everyone. No exceptions. Notice there what he says. The servant of God is to be kind. He is to practice theological theology. That is to say, his theology ought to be theologically correct. It ought to be biblical. And if your theology is going to be biblical, then you must be practicing kindness. 
You can't be a good theologian without being kind. Because what good are, is your theology if it is not changing your life? And so, he speaks here to speak the truth in kindness. Often boldness, yes, but in kindness. Listen, don't let your convictions make you mean. You know, sometimes people avoid Christians. You know why? Because we are so fervent. We are so determined truth matters that we become mean about it. (laughs) We're just angry Christians. We're mean. And nobody wants mean. Jesus loves you, you know. (laughs) Really? It's hard to believe Jesus loves me when you're mean about the Jesus that loves me. Be kind. Uh, you could compare yourself to the example of Jesus Christ. It's a good standard, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Look at what Jesus said as an example to us. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Paul did take on the example. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians 10.1. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. In other words, I put on the gentleness and meekness of Christ. There's a particular kindness that allows the servant of God to serve God by being kind or gentle toward others. And we need to seek out that kindness and display it. Kindness does not come natural to me, does it to you? It's something I actually have to think about. Be kind. And it is essential. Be kind. You notice that he also writes then to Timothy, along the same line, by the way, he says that the A servant of God must be able to teach. To teach what? Of course, to teach the scriptures. And the idea here is that you are able to teach the scriptures in an effective way. And why does he bring the two together, kindness and teaching? Well, the truth is is that teaching or nurturing others in the word of God requires kindness. (laughs) It, it, It is an act of kindness to actually teach somebody the Word of God. To see someone who needs to know what you know and then share what you know about Christ is an act of kindness. You know, some decades ago, I was in South America visiting my grandmother, who I did not know well because I lived here and she lived there and she's passed on uh, many, many years ago. But she, at this stage in life, was actually living a rather affluent life. And she lived in a neighborhood where young, poor children would, it seemed to be on a rotating basis, they would come and, and rotate from house to house that they knew would be more generous with food. And, and she would send me out while I was visiting with a loaf of bread and break it up and give it to the kids. And when the kids came, she always got excited. And she would run to the cupboard and get the bread that she had purchased just for that. But to my surprise, the bread, Italian bread, was old. It was hard. And she said, what I want you to do is just break it and give it to the kids. There were five or six kids, as poor as they could be. I had never seen that with my own eyes. I had read about it. I've seen pictures. But here they were. It was an amazing uh, scene watching these kids literally stretching their hands through the railing, asking for 
old bread. And so I gave him the bread, and, and my grandmother said to me, look at them, and they, they, they look like little mice gnawing on bread. And they did. Starving. And I said, Grandma, why don't you just give them fresh bread? She goes, oh no, they're poor. I didn't understand that. And by the way, she was a big-hearted woman. But you see, in her time, in her day, there was a separation between the rich and the poor. And you only did so much. So in her mind, she was doing a great thing by giving old bread to the poor. Because most people gave nothing. But you dare not give fresh bread to the poor. It's beyond our ability to comprehend, but that was the culture. Why don't you just give them fresh bread? Well, as I said, to her, it was an act of kindness. In our eyes, it just sounds horrible. What an awful thing to do. But we all would agree to offer something is kinder than offering nothing. And that's what she was doing. She was offering something. But let me suggest to you that we do the same thing when we refuse to teach God's word to others. To offer what is better is the best kind of kindness. And when we have God's word freshly, daily, instilled in our hearts, and we keep it to ourselves, we're doing worse than my grandmother. It is an act of kindness to give to people the nurturing, satisfying teaching of the Word of God. You don't have to be a scholar to point them in the Word of God. This, of course, implies that you are learning the Word of God. It implies that you are taking on a leadership uh, position within your own ranks and teaching somebody. You're, you're taking them under your wing. Young, old, doesn't matter. You are leading them in the nurturing truth of God. You're being kind. You're being an example. It means that you are a student who will then teach even as you are learning. Now, notice what Paul says. Let me move on here, because the clock is moving on. Notice here that you are to be kind if you are a bondservant of the Lord. You are then in kindness to teach the word of God. You should not be quarreling. And notice here he says also that you are to patiently endure all evil. You're in verse 24. And I find that phrase rather interesting, and the various English translations will translate that little phrase there in different ways. So that my ESV says, patiently endure all evil. The NIV says that you will not be resentful. The KJV says you will be patient. The NASB says patient when wronged. And the Young's literal translation, which is the closest to the original, says patient under evil. Thus, I like what the ESV says, patiently endure all evil. The idea here is that the servant of God has an attitude of forbearance. Uh, there's a sense of restraint, a sense of self-control and even tolerance. Not tolerance of sin, but that rather you tolerate, you endure all evil opposition patiently when you are wronged. It's difficult to endure evil 
it's even more difficult when that evil wrongs you. And here the Apostle Paul says, endure patiently the evil that comes against you. That, that is, don't lash out, and don't be pugnacious, patiently endure. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in, in his book, The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God, he says, um, he talks about how uh, when you see sheep in a field, and, and around here sporadically we do see sheep in a field, and maybe you've noticed, you don't hear, you don't see sheep grazing in a field complaining. In fact, no matter what the weather is like, they seem to be rather content, don't they? Just stand there. Their mouths move. But they don't complain. They seem to be very, very content. And Edward writes that, that not only do they look healthy no matter what their condition is, he writes, they are not apt to complain and cry when they are hurt. Sheep in a field. Sheep in a farm. And then he contrasts it with swine. He says that the sheep are unlike the swine, unlike the pigs which, quote, are apt to scream aloud when they are touched. Isn't that true about pigs? Just touch them, they squeak. Yeah, a couple of months ago, I was in Cuba trying to preach, and there was a brick wall behind me. On the other side of the wall was a pig, and nobody was even doing anything to the pig. They were just trying to, you know, go back to your little hut. And the pig was squeaking and squealing so much so I couldn't preach. I had to stop. And then the rooster began. And that's what pigs do. They squeal and they squeak as if it was bloody murder. Well, my friends, we should not be ready to call down fire from God when people oppose us. We're apt to doing that. Instead, we should take our cue from the Redeemer, Christ, instead of the swine. Christ who endured all sorts of treachery for the cause of our salvation. He endured because of the reason he came. Uh, Peter writes about it in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 21. He says, Christ also suffered, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And I understand it is most difficult to be silent when we ourselves have been wronged. It is very difficult to just say nothing. I wish we would be so offended when God is offended. <laughs> Usually when God is offended, it doesn't offend us so much. In fact, we say, well, he's a big God. He could take care of himself. But as soon as we're offended, we say, oh, God, where are you? Please do something. Strike that person. Restrain that person. Do something. Vengeance is yours, oh, God. Please make it mine, too. We're very much offended when we are offended, not so much offended when God is offended. The truth is, is that unjust criticism is hard for us to accept. Here the Bible says, Paul tells us, to patiently endure all evil. And that implies, don't be resentful. 
That implies that evil is going to happen, and that implies that often evil is inescapable. What should we do? When people oppose us, endure it patiently. Don't retaliate. Run to God. Endure it patiently. Let me suggest this to you. Even seek to be content when you are wronged. I know that's difficult, but not impossible. We see that in the scriptures again and again, but nowhere do we see it better than in Christ himself, who when he was standing right before Pontius Pilate, when he was being accused, berated, mocked and laughed at, when he was being lashed out, and here he's being interrogated, hands bound in the nude, standing before Pontius Pilate. And he was content. He was content. And the reason he was content was not because he enjoyed any of what was happening to him. The reason he was content is because he knew he was at the center of his father's will. And there he was content. He knew he was where he ought to be. He was doing his father's bidding. And he was able to to be content. My friends, there are two ways to endure hardship or opposition. You can endure it angrily, with self-pity, faithlessness. You can be short-tempered and blaming others and feel like you've been victimized yet again, all while feeling very justified about your feelings. Or you can do it God's way. You could endure it patiently, which involves undisplaced joy, faith-filled responses, reactions, a sense of expectation, Lord, what are you going to do here? I'm looking forward to seeing it. A sense of courage, a sense of kindness. You see, the Christian needs to be one who is kind. But not only that, if you look at verse 25, the first half, you see that you have to add something to your kindness, and that is conviction. The servant of the Lord needs to possess convictional kindness. Notice there, verse 25, it says that the servant of the Lord should correct your opponent. Yes, endure it patiently, but also correct your opponent. In other words... um, Do what is right by the person so that he will no longer be in the wrong. It it is not saying prove him wrong. It is not saying take him down. It is saying with gentleness correct that person. You see it there? With gentleness, that is without quarreling, with kindness, with a patient sense of duty as a bondservant of God your master, make your master known, correct the erring person, brother, sister, with God's truth. Gently correct the person who misunderstands you or who opposes you because you are serving God properly. Keep ye in mind that you are, of course, the ambassador of God. Opposition of you will occur if you are looking to represent God. You know that, right? Jesus Christ made that very clear. If they oppose me, of course they're going to oppose you. Uh, like we said last week in Matthew 10, 40, um, that anybody who opposes the servant of God is actually opposing God. 
We read, whoever receives you, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. But there needs to be, in the midst of all that kindness, a particular boldness, without compromise, to go and correct the person. But it must be done with meekness. It must be done with gentleness or kindness. Insert whichever word you want. Here it all means the same. First Thessalonians 2, 7 says, But we were gentle among you. Paul says this. Listen, we came to you. We were very gentle. In fact, he says, We were like nursing mothers taking care of her own children. And we've all seen how caring, how nurturing, how gentle a mother, a nursing mother is. It's a beautiful sight. The care of a mother to a child. And that's what we ought to be to each other. Uh, here, again, meekness, gentleness, uh, these words are interchangeable. And, and, and meekness, I think, uh, is, is a word we don't see too often. We certainly, we don't use it. Uh, I, I think we have a misunderstanding of what meekness is. Well, let, let's be clear here. Meekness does not mean you're timid. Certainly, it does not mean that you cower in a corner in fear. Meekness doesn't mean that you are subservient or that you have some undue humility attitude. Oh, not me. Oh, shucks. I'm a nobody. That's not meekness. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is boldness that does not offend. It is truth that cuts, yes, but it also runs to heal. Meekness is courage that is caring and loving and kind. Meekness means you are emulating Jesus Christ himself, your master. And here it says, correct your opponent, the person who opposes you. Don't do it brutishly. Don't do it in an overbearing way. Well, let me show you who I am and what I know. Do not come to them with a sense of superiority, but rather gently with convictional kindness. Know what you believe, and then convey it with kindness. Truth in love. Christ is worthy of this. If we are the people of Christ, he is worthy that we would represent him properly. And some people will argue, well, you know, there were those two episodes in the Gospels in which Jesus Christ did correct his opponents, and he wasn't so gentle. He wasn't so meek. In fact, he turned over the tables, and then he made a whip out of rope, and he started whipping people. How's that gentle? Well, that is an interesting question, isn't it? Maybe you thought it. Did you? I assume some of you did. But you notice something about Jesus Christ. Whenever Jesus Christ himself was offended, he did not retaliate. He opposed them with what? Convictional kindness. But when God the Father was opposed, he was willing to die for the Father. Whenever God the Father was attacked, he was willing to fight to the end. In fact, he fought to the end for you. He went to the cross. But when he came to himself, he did not fight back. My friends, the idea of conviction and kindness do not have to oppose each other. They come together 
in the Christian heart, out of the Christian's lip. Let me make one last point this morning. You'll notice there at the very end of verse 25, the second half, and then verse 26, not only are we to be kind, and not only are we to have convictional kindness, but we are also to be compassionate. Compassionate. So last week we had three C words. This, this morning we have two C words and one K word. Kind, convictionally kind, and here compassion. Now if you take a look there at verse 25 and then 26, you probably are not thinking about compassion. It's probably not the word, the idea that pops into your head. It reads this way. I'll begin at the top of verse 25. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant him repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him who do his will. Keep in mind that the reason that Jonah, in the Old Testament, the prophet Jonah, did not want to go to Nineveh was because he was so angry, he so hated the Ninevites, that he wanted to see them die. God, do not, do not save their souls. Do not keep from destroying them. What did he lack? Compassion. He did not want them to repent because he lacked compassion. If you have compassion, you will desire even for your worst enemy to repent. Pray to God for more compassion. Your desire to see your opposers, those who wrong you, be corrected, beginning with repentance, requires compassion and kindness and conviction. The Lord's servant gently corrects those that oppose him, her. But that correction will require the person to repent. And for you to desire for that person to repent, you must be compassionate towards them. Notice here what it says, the verse says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. Does that surprise you? First of all, that it's God that grants repentance. And here it says, perhaps, maybe he will, maybe he won't. And some of you are saying, well, then how can you blame me if I haven't repented? God, you haven't granted me repentance. So it's your fault, not mine. Well, let's begin by understanding what repentance is. Repentance is the work of God in the sinner's heart. It's a mighty and difficult work. One and uh, the only one that will actually break the heart of the sinner. And, and repentance is more than just sorrow. Rather, repentance is turning from your sin. It does involve sorrow, but it's far more than just sorrow. I could say I'm sorry, but it doesn't mean I've changed my ways. Repentance says, not only am I sorry, but Lord, I don't want to be this anymore. It's a change of mind, a change of direction. The problem with repentance is that sometimes we turn around and go back to it. But repentance says, I'm moving from it. Wherever you have faith, you need to have repentance. Because when you have faith, you're looking to God, and if you're moving towards God, you have to repent and leave your sin. You cannot go to God and stay in your sin. When you move to one, you move away from the other. Change of heart 
that sets you in a different direction. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 7, 9. Let me read it quickly to you as I wrap things up here. Paul writes, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, you felt a godly grief. A godly grief. It's a grief that brings you to a place where your mind, your direction, your way of thinking about that issue changes. I don't want to be there anymore. And you see, compassion towards those who oppose you will say, I want that person to change. I don't want just God to judge them. I want them to change. My heart goes out to them. No more, Lord. Grant them repentance. I'll speak boldly with conviction and kindness, but Lord, grant them repentance. Thomas Brooke writes, Repentance is a flower that does not grow in nature's garden. In other words, it's sourced in God. God is the source of repentance. So to whom does God give repentance? Does he just sit up in heaven and say, uh, you today, not you. I gave some to you yesterday, a little more to you today. <laughs> That's not what he does. No, no. God grants repentance to those who truly want to be holy. God grants repentance to those who truly want to live according to his word. They are the recipients of repentance. And what is the goal? Well, take a look there at the goal. Verse 25 says, uh, gives us the goal of repentance. It says, leading a repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. A repentance that will lead a person to the right understanding of God so that the sinner will want to be right with God. Why? Because truth really does matter. And truth can either take you to God or alienate you from God. Here the desire is that the person will repent and know the truth that will solidify a communion with Christ Jesus, your creator. Verse 26 reads this way, that they may come to their senses. Correct them with convictional kindness, patiently enduring, so that they would repent, and in repenting, they may come to their senses. Verse 26. Now, what I find interesting there is that if you were to go to the original language and read it in that language, it would read, instead of that they may come to their senses, it reads this way, that they would return to soberness. That they would once again be sober. The idea here is that they are drunk. They are drunk and their senses are no longer functioning. And the idea here is that now they will return to their senses. They'll no longer be inebriated by their sin. Why? Because sin weakens the conscience, just like alcohol. Sin numbs your senses of what is right and wrong. It confuses the heart. It makes you do what you would otherwise never do. That's what sin does. If you're drunk on sin, expect it. You can't drink from that bottle for too long before it actually catches up with you. It will corrode your convictions. And so Paul says that they may come back 
to their senses. Otherwise, like a drunkard, they will function, they will live life and think they are living properly even though everybody sees that they're not. They're the last to see it. So uh, repentance allows you to come back to your senses. Uh, like a boxer who's knocked out. And what do we say? We say, when he came to, when he came to what? When he came back to himself, back to his senses, he got up and got knocked down again, right? No, he got back up and fought the fight. Like the prodigal son, if you read there in the gospel, the prodigal son, it says, he came to himself. In other words, he came back to his senses and was made right with his father. Now, now notice something here very particular. It's my last point. I promise. Notice here. That compassion says that I want a, the person to avoid the devil's snare. You see that in verse 26? That he may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Compassion wants the person who wrongs you to escape the snare of the devil. It says, I find no pleasure in seeing you alienated from God. I want you to be restored to God. Repent. It doesn't matter what you did to me. It doesn't matter what you said. My heart grows in compassion for you. And I want you to escape the snare of the devil. And notice here that it is a double snare. The devil is rather, rather devious. A double snare. Look at here what it says there. First the devil ensnares a person. First the devil captures a person and begins to do to the person whatever he wants to manipulate his conscience, uh, get him drunk in sin. And then, notice there, he uses the person for his own purposes. A double snare. First I take you to myself and then I make you do my bidding. I use you for my purposes. I will divide your family, and I'm going to use you. I will injure your church, and I'm going to use you. I will make you the person everybody despises. I will take you, and I will manipulate you. I will use you. A double snare. Compassion says, I want you to repent so that you will avoid the snares of the devil. So, my friends, let me ask you here. What is the measure of your kindness, the measure of your convictional kindness? To what degree do you have compassion in your own heart? Compassion for those who wrong you, who oppose you. Well, let me recommend to you, let me encourage you, maybe insist with you, that this week, take time, even maybe today, before you forget that you ask the Lord to help you see yourself correctly so that you can answer these questions. To what degree am I kind? To what degree do I have convictional kindness? To what degree am I compassionate? Ask the Lord, Lord, show me. Begin it today. Begin to show me who I am. Become self-aware in these matters. What kind of a servant am I to my Lord? And ask God then to grant you repentance wherever it is that you fall short. 
Lord, I, I want to do what is right. I want to be holy before you. Show me. Give me repentance. And ask God to instill these traits in you so that you will be, a, be able to better serve your king, Jesus Christ. Will you do that? That's your homework this week. Ask the Lord.